The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Convergence of Innovative Therapy and Allo-HCT in AML, Applying Current Evidence to Improve Outcomes. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KZP860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome. We're going to get started now. Uh, for those of you in the back, uh, please, uh, please do come in and, and take a seat. We're going to start our, uh, our symposium on the convergence of innovative therapy and allogeneic transplant and AML, applying current evidence to improve outcomes. Um, I'm James Forn. I work at Mayo Clinic here in Florida in Jacksonville, and my colleague, Dr. Jessica Altman, uh, are the faculty. So since 2017, I used to be um, envious of the myeloma doctors who had so many new drug approvals. And I'm happy to say in the last five years, now six years, we've had several new approvals uh, which have incrementally moved the field in AML. With liposomal donorifs and citerabine, the addition of FLT3 inhibitors up front or in the relapse setting, IDH inhibitors, the reemergence of CD33-targeted gemtuzumab azogamycin, and venetoclax, either alone or in combination, as well as azacitidine maintenance and glastigib. So we now have new options. The emerging advances are centered on integrating novel doublets or triplets of these agents, developing strategies for those with refractory disease, the challenging subgroups, particularly TP53, confirming a role for immunotherapy and AML beyond transplant, and also exposing more patients to the benefits of transplant. And I think that's the big question is how will these new modalities be used in conjunction with allogeneic transplant? This is real-world data that was presented at ASH. Uh, it was a retrospective analysis. It's EHR data, electronic health record data, of over 2,000 patients with newly diagnosed AML, all adults, between 2013 and 2021, really looking at first-line therapy. And you can see that the largest group of patients, just under half, received intensive chemotherapy with cytarabine. Um, and then you get these different groups, 13% with HMA venetoclax, 10% decidabine alone, 10% azacitidine alone, 6% no treatment. And so the predominant first-line agent in the real world on recent data into going into the pandemic was 40, uh, 46% getting uh, cytarabine-based induction therapy, 26% who either got a single agent, hypomethylene agent, or no treatment. And so obviously there's work to do to move the needle in AML. I will say that in this data set, the proportion of patients who were receiving hypometh- hypomethylating agents, HMA, with venetoclax had been increasing since 2008, so that's gaining increasing traction. It's still just about one in eight patients, however. So with that background, I want to just set the goals for today to review the baseline features that may inform prognosis and facilitate treatment decisions for transplant-eligible patients, to share guidance on integrating novel therapies into induction, consolidation, and maintenance, or post-remission, based on updated safety and efficacy uh, evidence and on current guidelines, including NCCN, and as best as possible to equip you with the skills to incorporate new modalities into treatment plans for relapse and refractory AML, including as pre-transplant conditioning or as salvage options after transplant. Um, I'm going to uh, just introduce my, colleague, uh, my friend, really, Jessica Altman, who we've known for many years. She's a professor of medicine and director of the acute leukemia program at Northwestern, uh, just to uh, initiate a discussion on mutation-defined AML and FLT3. Thank you. Thank you, James. Thank you, Peerview. Um, and thank you again to uh, 
The, sorry, I, as you can tell, I'm not quite as tall as my colleague. Um, but thank you to um, the sponsors for allowing us to give this talk. Um, this is actually my first time at Tandem. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. I've been told by everyone that I walk in the hall that those who do uh, stem cell transplant are cooler than the leukemia doctors, um, and I think that that's true. So again, thank you for allowing me to be here. I want to start off with a case of Susan. So Susan um, is a 65-year-old woman, history of hypothyroidism, excellent performance status with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia characterized by normal cytogenetics and a FLT3 internal tandem duplication mutation. As you meet with her, um, she notes that she's interested in pursuing aggressive therapy. So the, the therapeutic options that come up in the conversation really are listed here. Standard 7 plus 3, 7 plus 3 with mitostorin, 7 plus 3 with an alternate FLT3 tyrosine kinase inhibitor, or is there an emerging role for an HMA-VEN-based uh, regimen with or without a FLT3 inhibitor? So we can turn to the NCCN guidelines for what thoughts are in this situation. Um, and when we think about older adults with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia, when we're sitting with our patients and their families, we think about um, the patient characteristics and disease characteristics, along with patient goals. So is the patient um, uh, fit or appropriate for intensive chemotherapy, and is their disease appropriate for intensive chemotherapy? And is there something in addition to intensive chemotherapy, if that is the approach, that should be added, i.e., should a FLT3 inhibitor be added to intensive chemotherapy? And will there be a role for FLT3 inhibitors other than mitostorin? So I'll take us back um, over five years to the RATIFY data. This is the uh, large cooperative group study conducted by the CALGB group, then known as CALGB, now known as the Alliance looking at the addition of mitostorin versus placebo in adults 18 to 59 with newly diagnosed FLT3 mutated acute myeloid leukemia. And this trial demonstrated an improvement in overall survival with the addition of mitostorin compared to placebo. And I think what's particularly interesting is this is a demonstration of it might matter how you get to remission and then go to stem cell transplant. So the addition of uh, mitostorin led to an improvement in um, outcomes post-transplant compared to those who received placebo. We haven't stopped with mitostorin. There was uh, recently completed and um, presented a large randomized study looking at quizartinib, a more potent FLT3 inhibitor, um, compared to placebo in adults with newly diagnosed FLT3 mutated acute myeloid leukemia. This trial allowed the older age, the age up to 75, so a little bit um, older patients were enrolled compared to Ratify. And the schema is shown here. Patients were able to receive either donorubicin or idorubicin, which has been important as we have had drug shortages throughout um, the, the conduct of these studies. Um, patients received either uh, donorquizartinib uh, or placebo for induction therapy uh, with donorubicin uh, or idorubicin with cytarabine. And patients uh, in remission went on to receive consolidation for a few cycles, um, and then were allowed to receive continuation therapy. If they were on the quizartinib arm, they, may, they continued quizartinib throughout. And this trial, similar to what was seen in Ratify, demonstrated an improvement in median overall survival with the addition of quizartinib compared to placebo when combined with intensive chemotherapy. 
this uh, improvement in overall survival translated to a reduction in the risk of death. So the median overall survival for patients who received placebo was 15 months compared um, to 32 months for those who received quisartinib. And so the question is, well, what cost does this come at? Um, the addition of quisartinib, in my opinion, um, and in the opinion of uh, Dr. Erba and the colleagues who presented this data, um, demon, uh, is that the addition of quisartinib is generally very tolerable. You can see when you look at the major AEs across the trial of any grade that the only AE that looks to be slightly higher with the addition of quisartinib um, is um, the uh, neutropenia, but that did not translate to a difference in, uh, in the rates of febrile neutropenia. There was a slight increase in the risk of uh, grade three Q2C prolongation, and that has been of interest um, to the FDA in particular uh, with quisartinib and other targeted therapies. Similar to what was um, seen in Ratify, there is uh, an addition uh, and a benefit uh, for receiving quisartinib and then going to stem cell transplant. So the patients who underwent allostem stem cell transplant in CR1 had a longer survival um, when they received quisartinib versus receiving placebo. Um, it's probably not new news to this audience um, that gilteritinib has now been approved for relapsed FLA3 mutated acute myeloid leukemia for a number of years, and that has prompted the, its use um, and study in newly diagnosed patients. So for a number of years, um, we have been studying um, the addition of gilteritinib in combination with standard intensive induction chemotherapy and consolidation. And uh, there have been recent readouts of uh, the, this phase one trial. Um, this was a four-part phase one trial looking at different doses, uh, different anthracyclines, so both donorubicin and idorubicin were studied, and the day at which the gilteritinib um, was started in induction therapy. And when we look at all of these patients together, at a median follow-up of 36 months, uh, the median overall survival for patients who were treated on this phase one study with 7 plus 3 in GILT and then GILT in, in consolidation therapy was not reached. The CRC rate is nearly 90%. And when you look at the two-year overall survival, it was 72%. Similar toxicities are seen with uh, the addition of gilteritinib, as we've seen with the prior studies that we've discussed. Um, a large portion of patients experience febrile neutropenia, but a large portion of patients receiving intensive induction chemotherapy experience febrile neutropenia. Um, and uh, similarly, um, as expected, alterations in blood counts were seen. So this phase one study led to the development of a randomized study that has just recently completed accrual. This is the PRECOG 0905 study. It's a randomized study of adults with newly diagnosed FLT3 mutated acute myeloid leukemia who received, were randomized to receive either 7 plus 3 in mitostorin for induction or 7 plus 3 in gilteritinib. Um, <clears throat> patients who entered a CR were con, uh, received uh, consolidation chemotherapy with hydocytarabine, and the same FLT3 inhibitor that they were randomized to for induction. This is a, a 
ECOG, a cooperative group-led uh, study. Um, and I think it's important to note that a, this is a randomized phase two study with a primary endpoint looking at MRD-negative CR. Um, in, in Europe, in the Hovan group, there is ongoing a randomized phase three study asking um, with a similar layout, but asking a survival question. So let's get back to Susan. Susan, again, is the 65-year-old woman in history of hypothyroidism, excellent performance status, newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia characterized by FLT3 internal tandem duplication mutation. As you spend time talking to her, you um, and she agree that aggressive therapy is appropriate. She decides to enroll on the uh, PRECOG 0905 study. She was randomized to the standard arm with mitostorin. Her disease enters a complete remission after induction chemotherapy, and then she chooses to undergo a matched unrelated donor stem cell transplant in CR1 after one cycle of consolidation. Hey, James, um, how would you have treated this woman? Yeah, we would have followed almost exactly the same path. We, we also had the precog 905 study open, and so we felt that was an important question. Uh, so we would have offered her the trial also. And I, I, I think the data you presented, which I'm, I was aware of already, about transplant outcomes after mitostorin was is compelling. Uh, so we, we also would have looked for a donor and, and tried to get to transplant in first remission as quickly as possible. Great. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Um, unfortunately, not every patient um, is eligible or um, is appropriate for intensive chemotherapy. Um, and I, I think a not uncommon situation is instead of Susan being 65, she's 75, but more importantly with comorbidities, for instance, history of coronary artery disease or cardiomyopathy um, or heart failure, um, making us um, rethink the role of anthracycline-based chemotherapy, and now with a performance status um, closer to two instead of zero. And that impacts the way we think about our therapeutic options. Um, and this may be someone that we are more inclined to think about lower intensity and essentially anthracycline-sparing um, therapies. Um, and so I'd like to, us to look through a little bit of the data looking at that. So azacitidine and venetoclax has revolutionized the treatment for adults who are not um, deemed appropriate for intensive chemotherapy, whether that is based on disease biology or patient characteristics. Um, and when we look at uh, the data with azacitidine and venetoclax compared to azacitidine and placebo, for those individuals without uh, a FLT3 mutation, there is an uh, improvement in the CR and CR rate uh, with venetoclax and azacitidine um, compared to placebo. The, the improvement in CR um, continues if individuals' disease is characterized by FLT3 internal tandem duplication mutation. However, when we start to look at the overall survival advantage, the overall survival seems to not be as preserved as one would have hoped. So the median overall survival for individuals whose disease is characterized by a FLT3 mutation who receive uh, azacitidine alone, median survival is eight and a half months. Um, and uh, the addition of venetoclax adds a potentially an improvement in overall survival to 13.3 months. But I'd like to draw your attention to the bottom um, curves, which look at the FLT3 uh, TKD patients. Um, and the improvement, um, I 
question if a lot of that improvement um, in overall survival in the FLT3 patient population is being driven by those whose disease has a tyrosine kinase domain mutation. Because as you can see, there's an improvement in median overall survival in that patient population, whereas when you look at the top right curve, um, the overall survival um, improvement um, is not as great. So that has led um, Dr. Yilmaz and his colleagues at MD Anderson to look at uh, whether the addition of an additional agent, a third agent, i.e. a FLT3 inhibitor to azacitidine uh, and venetoclax, results in an improvement um, in survival. And what we can say based on uh, this recently published data is that the addition of a third agent, i.e. a FLT3 inhibitor, leads to an improvement in CR and CRI rate, an increase in the uh, PCR negativity um, or uh, flow-based studies to evaluate from any measurable residual disease. And in addition, it looks like there may be an emerging improvement in overall survival with the overall survival not reached yet for the triplet-based therapies. However, based on the fact that this is newer data, um, the time of analysis is shorter than what um, was seen in the doublet studies. This exciting data led um, Nick Short and other colleagues at MD Anderson to develop a triplet-based study for adults with newly diagnosed acute myeloid leukemia. So they conducted a phase one, two study of patients with either relapsed and refractory FLT3-mutated AML or newly diagnosed FLT3-mutated AML who were deemed unsuitable for intensive chemotherapy. Patients were treated with azacitidine and venetoclax in combination with gilteritinib. And in the 21 newly diagnosed patients, all patients responded, and 95% of them, or 20 of the 21, achieved a complete remission. In addition, the assessments for uh, measurable residual disease, either by multi-parameter flow or by PCR, were also promising. And with a median um, follow-up of 10 months, the six-month overall survival rate was 95%, with an estimated one-year overall survival rate of 80%. So we look forward to continued, um, informa- continued data in this space. And the anticipation is that there will be um, hopefully randomized studies uh, looking at triplets versus doublets um, to help further clarify uh, the role of this regimen. So I'm going to turn to James um, now. I'm, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, FLT3-mutated AML, an area of AML therapy where we've seen um, new approvals and there's a lot of excitement. There are still some areas of acute myeloid leukemia that have yet to see benefits um, over the last couple of years. Thank you. No, thank you. That's right. I mean, TP53 mutation remains a, a difficult area. and. Um, I was just looking in the app, and there are already questions coming in about this very topic. But uh, what are the treatment options for Susan, the case that was just presented, if there was a TP53 mutation that was discovered? Is transplant an appropriate uh, course to pursue? Are there novel platforms? And uh, on the right side of the slide, it says recommendations. I, I don't think we can make recommendations. It's more acknowledgments that there are standard platforms like venetoclax-based therapy that can get remission but have limited benefit on survival if there's a TP53. So this is a difficult space. And one of the exciting areas that is emerging is targeting CD47, which has been shown to be promising, at least in early phase trials, uh, including as a pre-transplant modality. Now, this is older transplant data published in 2016. It's uh, German data looking at transplant outcomes for patients who have a TP53 mutation. 
And uh, it's a cohort of 97 patients. They were able to go back and do sequencing. 2016 is really when NGS started coming into the clinic for most of us. So this predates uh, uh, standard NGS when they just went looking for TP53, presumably because of adverse karyotype. And you can see that in this group of patients, the ones who had a TP53 mutation had a very poor outcome after transplant, less than 10% survival after two years in that original cohort. So we know this is a difficult area. A more recent systematic review, actually a meta-analysis that was presented uh, last year at the tandem meetings, looked at 460 patients with a TP53 mutation undergoing transplant from six different studies and confirmed poor outcomes, two-year overall survival of 15%. And we often ask ourselves, is this really a patient who's going to benefit from transplants, and how can we do the best for them? Uh, It's a difficult area. Uh, One of the new strategies I've mentioned is targeting CD47. Uh, This is a, uh, not my slide actually, because it's um, a little simplified, but uh, CD47 inhibits a phagocytosis signal in macrophages. And so it's used by healthy cells. It signals through SERP alpha. And so... Cells that, even if cells have an, are presenting an antigen or a signal that might um, cause co-stimulation, if there's CD47 expression, there is no phagocytosis, and so the macrophage system is not activated. And by using an anti-CD47 antibody or, in other settings, a SERP-alpha inhibitor, you can inhibit the inhibition, so to speak, and activate phagocytosis in the macrophage Uh, so that it's really a new checkpoint uh, pathway that's being exploited uh, with several different agents. And one of the exciting ones is magrolimab. Many of you might have heard of this agent. Uh, In combination with azacitidine shows some efficacy in early phase studies in patients with AML and a TP53 mutation. Uh, The table on the right is really summarized here. This combination had an almost 50% response rate and 33% complete response rate in TP53 AML, considered better than historical controls uh, of azacitidine alone. And no significant cytopenias or infections and really no autoimmune AEs, as you could see with a PD-1 inhibitor, PD-L1 inhibitor. Uh, there is on-target anemia. That's a safety issue. You can induce a hemolytic anemia, and it can also make it a little harder early on to cross-match patients. So this is an area where you need to collaborate with your blood bank when you're starting a patient on magrolimab. But in this trial, the median survival with azacitidine and magro, this is not venetoclax, uh, this is magrolimab, was 11 months. Um, and some patients were able to move on to transplant, and they had an encouraging one-year survival of 60%, showing that maybe, just as Dr. Altman suggested earlier, what gets you into remission matters and influences the transplant outcome. So this is now being studied. Oh, by the way, in this, in this uh, waterfall plot, you can see that almost all patients had a significant or, or notable reduction in blast burden in the bone marrow. So this is now going on to a randomized study in frontline setting for TP53 mutated AML. It's the phase three enhanced two study that I would encourage you to support if possible and that we're just about to activate at our center and is is active nationally and accruing. I'm going to move on to, uh, so, so that, that's your answer to TP53, that's a hard space, but I'm going to move on to therapeutic challenges with post-remission therapy and the management of relapse refractory. Uh, and and this, is, this is you, Dr. Allman. Oh, is this me? Okay. Uh, so Susan, our original patient who had hypothyroidism, normal performance status, and a FLT3 mutation, gets, uh, is interested in uh, uh, pursuing aggressive therapy and gets into remission, but elects not to go to transplant. And uh, she declines transplant. 
I'm sure all of you in the room are familiar with these scenarios in clinic where you think you know the right thing for the person, but they know the right thing for themselves. And there are many reasons why a patient may not go to transplant. It could be psychosocial or personal or medical or other reasons. And so then the question is, is maintenance an option? What more can we do for this person who remains at elevated risk for relapse? And if so, what can be considered in this setting? Um, the NCCN guidelines address this a little bit. There uh, are a couple of situations, particularly in FLT3AML, where, where maintenance therapy may have a role. Um, I'll present the results of the uh, Quasar study for patients who had intermediate or, or adverse risk cytogenetics in remission after intensive induction. Most of them got consolidation, although not all, who showed a benefit of oral azacitidine two weeks on, two weeks off, indefinitely until progression. And that has shown a relapse-free survival and an overall survival advantage. For patients who do go on to transplant, now that's not Susan in this scenario, and they have a FLT3 ITD, there's also a potential role of FLT3 inhibition as maintenance after transplant, right now with serafinib and maybe with other agents. And those are the key situations where we think there's a known role for maintenance. There are others where it's being explored. Now, the SORMAIN study was published a couple years ago now. This was after transplant for patients who had a FLT3 positive AML, randomized in this small randomized study, 83 patients, to get serafinib versus placebo after transplant. And you can see there was a significant impact on relapse-free survival and to a lesser extent also on overall survival. At two years, the relapse-free survival was 85% with serafinib versus 53% with placebo, that was statistically significant. And the overall survival, 90% versus 66%, also statistically significant, at least at the two-year time point. Overall, the survival advantage is a little less significant, but the relapse-free survival is uh, as, as compelling for using a FLT3 inhibitor. Serafinib is not always an easy medicine to get or to give. I've actually been denied it for patients after transplant. It's not FDA approved for this indication, but it is in the guidelines as a consideration. And there are now preliminary data suggesting that gilteritinib may also, also does appear to have activity, at least in phase two in this setting. The MORPHO trial, the BMT-CTN-1506 study, randomized 346 patients to either gilteritinib or placebo after transplant. And, uh, and so this is an active question. That study has completed accrual. I don't know when we're going to get a read on that. I keep thinking it's uh, the next meeting, but uh, we're waiting for events to happen and, and to see if there, uh, if there is, if, if gilteritinib has that same impact versus placebo. Uh, is there a benefit to FLT3 inhibition after transplant? Part of this study is really looking, say, is looking at FLT3 detection uh, using an MRD assay to predict relapse and also whether patients who are MRD positive also have that same benefit. So we're awaiting morpho trial results. Now, I mentioned oral azacitidine maintenance already as an alternative to transplant. It is a legitimate alternative, um, or at least an FDA-approved alternative. And these are the updated results that presented at uh, ASH uh, just over a year ago, showing sustained long-term benefit of oral azacitidine beyond a year. You can see the oral aza versus placebo arm, uh, that the uh, uh, median survival went from 15 months to just over two years. And the three-year overall survival rates, the result seems to be holding azacitidine about 10% better, or just under 10% better than placebo, three-year overall survival of 37% versus 27.9%. And at five years, an ongoing, although diminished benefit, 26% versus 19%. So obviously, over time, patients progress, and the benefit has decreased over time. Um, but the hazard ratio remains significant with long-term follow-up. 
with a 31% reduction. That's a hazard ratio of 0.69 in the risk of death at any given time point with uh, uh, azacitidine or aza versus placebo. Now, there have been analyses looking at factors associated with long-term survival with oral aza as maintenance instead of transplant, or at least in this population who were, who were not eligible for transplant or did not choose transplant. And the major ones were if patients had a NPM1 stat, uh, uh, mutation, uh, that was associated with long-term survival. If patients had intermediate risk karyotype, that was associated with long-term survival. And also, if they converted from MRD positive to MRD negative, those were the factors associated with long-term survival in this report. And this is one of the few medicines that I know of that can actually measurably improve survival, even if not cure, at least survival in patients who are MRD positive. Uh, toxicity with oral azacitidine, there is some. It's predominantly grade one or two, predominantly GI toxicity, predominantly in the first two cycles of treatment. Um, and so it's recommended prophylaxis for at least the first two cycles with antiemetics. Uh, 41% of patients got neutropenia, grade 3 or 4, and 22% thrombocytopenia, so you must monitor blood counts. That's recommended uh, really every other week. And there is experience for higher-grade GI toxicity with interrupting the dose and resuming it once that toxicity resolves to grade 1 or lower. Uh, you can't see it very well, but if you download the slides, you'll see Farhad Ravandi from MD Anderson has a nice reference um, from 2021 on dosing, supportive care, and adjustments for oral azacitidine that I think are very practical uh, and useful. Post-transplant, HMAs have also been studied. Azacitidine, decitabine, oral aza have all been studied. Uh, there are some conflicting results. We had pilot data um, from VOSO that sh showed feasibility and suggested benefit of azacitidine. You have to use dose-reduced azacitidine after transplant, but in a randomized phase three trial of 187 patients led by the group at MD Anderson in Houston, um, uh, this has included high-risk AML and MDS in remission. Post-transplant azacitidine did not show a statistical benefit in relapse-free survival. Now, there were some questions about uh, why that was, because it, it, uh, there's some questions about why the study was negative, uh, but it was a negative study. Alternatively, for low-dose decitamine, 5 milligrams per meter squared, with GCSF in a randomized phase 2 study in 200 patients, all of whom had high-risk AML, after allo, there was a significant reduction in the risk of relapse. The hazard ratio was 0.32 using dose-adjusted, low-dose decitabine with nupogen for up to six cycles. Um, these are not on-label indications for either of these drugs. Uh, I'll, I'll just say that out loud. But I know our center, we will sometimes consider this for patients we think are higher risk. And this is an area of active, ongoing investigation for the best maintenance strategy for somebody after allo who does not have a FLT3 mutation. And this is just to show you that there is some feasibility data with oral azacitidine maintenance after transplant. Um, in this uh, study, they looked at 7-day or 14-day dosing, and a lower proportion of patients on the 14-day dosing had relapse. And so the authors recommended that 14-day dosing, dose-reduced oral aza be considered going forward in studies. Um, it was encouraging in this study that uh, the one-year survivals were 86 and 81% with these regimens. So at least in an early phase study, it shows feasibility, shows a dosing schedule, and a suggestion of better outcomes than we might have expected. But we'll need randomized data to really show the role of oral AZA. So I'm, I'm going to turn it back over to, to, to Jessica just to talk about FLT3 patients um, who have recurrence after, treat, after their first-line therapy and, and what are the options. Thanks. So, um, well... 
Maybe turn back to Susan. So assuming um, she did not undergo stem cell transplant um, or did um, been, uh, suffers from relapse disease, I think it's nice to think about what uh, therapeutic options exist. And I'll turn uh, to a review of the Admiral study. Um, the Admiral study, just to remind all of us, um, looked at 370 patients with relapsed FLT3-mutated acute myeloid leukemia. They had received either one or two prior lines of treatment. Patients were randomized to either receive gilteritinib or salvage chemotherapy. Salvage chemotherapy could either be a lower-intensity therapy, azacitidine, low-dose ARC, or a higher-intensity therapy, MAC or FLAG-IDA. Patients were pre-specified ahead of time what they would get so they could be compared. Um, and uh, the uh, CRC rate, which essentially is a modified CR, so it's CR, CRI, CRP, um, and a little bit of morphologic leukemia-free state, um, and the gilteritinib arm uh, was 54% versus salvage chemotherapy was 22%. Um, and when you look at the overall survival, there's an overall survival advantage of gilteritinib compared to chemotherapy of 9.3 months versus 5.6 months. I'd also like to point out the transplant data that we have for individuals um, who resumed gilteritinib um, post-transplant versus those who didn't. There was an improvement in survival. So um, the Admiral th- times have, have moved on since the Admiral study. The Admiral study um, in the Admiral study, only six percent of individuals had had received mitostorin, and so that begs the question of Susan when she um, suffers a relapse of her disease after receiving mitostorin, will gilteritinib still have an advantage? Will she still be able to have any benefit from the gilteritinib? So um, a number of centers, uh, including uh, Mayo Clinic uh, and Northwestern, uh, looked at, conducted a retrospective analysis, um, and we looked at 113 patients who received gilteritinib alone or as combination therapy for the treatment of relapsed and refractory FLT3-mutated AML. We looked particularly in the individuals who had received prior mitostorin, and the CRC rate uh, was maintained, um, and uh, as was the overall survival of about eight months. Slightly lower than what was seen in Admiral, but these are individuals who had had prior mitostorin. Um, the CR uh, rate and the median overall survival um, persisted, so individuals still have benefit. As um, others have shown throughout um, analyses over the last number of years, that mutations in RAS signaling, NRAS, KRAS, PTP, N11, um, predict a lower chance of response uh, and lower uh, duration and, and survival response uh, with, mitostor- with uh, gilteritinib. Um, in addition, uh, based on company data, so based on uh, Chrysalis and Admiral, um, when they looked at the individuals who had received prior tyrosine kinase inhibitors in both Chrysalis, which was the phase one study of gilteritinib, and Admiral, which is the randomized study, that um, the uh, even if one had received a prior tyrosine kinase inhibitor, that the response rate was still maintained. So there's still a role to receive gilteritinib if you've had prior mitostorin. That's kind of the take-home for that. Is there the opportunity to do something different than gilteritinib alone? We recently published uh, a phase one, um, an expansion uh, study of gilteritinib and venetoclax in relapsed and refractory acute myeloid leukemia. And the modified CRC rate to kind of parallel what was seen in the Admiral study was 75%. 
Um, and uh, that was maintained in individuals who had or had not received a prior tyrosine kinase inhibitor. And similar to what has been shown before in individuals uh, who undergo allostem cell transplant, there is an improvement in survival compared to not undergoing uh, allostem cell transplant. Now, this patient population is very different than the Admiral patient population. These were patients um, who had received multiple lines of therapy. About 25% of them had received three or more lines of therapy, whereas in Admiral, patients had received one or two lines that was pre-specified based on the inclusion criteria. Um, and a large um, portion of these patients had received uh, prior tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So it's not possible really to compare what we're seeing with this versus the Admiral data. But I do present this as one other alternative option. And I think we'll next turn uh, to James to hear about the emerging pre-transplant approaches in the salvage setting. Thank you. So um, this patient, Alice, is 72. Treatment refractory secondary AML. We asked questions about her early on, receiving four cycles of desibamine venetoclax with persistent disease. 11% blast, monosomy 7. Don't have genotyping her at this point, but a good performance status, and she has a matched unrelated donor. So the question is for this patient with refractory AML, more than 10% blasts, what is the next step? Is transplant feasible? And what's the role of the multidisciplinary transplant team in coordinating care for her? The NCCN guidelines, uh, Dr. Altman and I are both on that panel, but we, we, will, we will tell you this is a pretty lean area on NCCN. It just says, well, you relapse, try to get a remission and get to a transplant is really the message. And if you have a targeted agent, use a targeted agent to try to get remission. You just heard data supporting that strongly for FLIT3. Um, and then the challenge is how do you select the best salvage reg regimen when treatment options are limited, particularly for this patient who's already had venetoclax? One option and, uh, is, is IOMAB-B. Um, now, uh, CD45, which when I, I'm old enough to say when I was young, was called the leukocyte common antigen, uh, or LCA. CD45 is expressed in virtually all lymphocytes and 85 to 90% of acute leukemias. And IOMAB-B is a, a radiopharmaceutical I131 apomistamab that combines a murine anti-CD45 antibody with a beta particle-emitting radionuclide I131 at high dose to target lymphomatopoietic cells. It offers target-specific ablation as a conditioning regimen for transplant meant to clear leukemia and lymphomatopoietic cells and does not bind to other normal tissues and directs radiation, uh, as you would hope, to leukemia and immune cells. Uh, this is uh, data um, uh, on the estimation of, uh, of the estimated radiation absorbed in millicuries of I-131 for all patients who've been treated with this. And you can see that the dose concentrates in marrow, spleen, to a lesser extent liver, and minimally in lung, kidney, or total body. Um, I, I want to just credit uh, the reference at the bottom, John Pagel, uh, who, uh, when he was at the University of Washington, when he was at the Hutch, really pioneered radioimmunotherapy for acute leukemia and did a lot of early work and, and a lot of early research in this area, and I know remains actively involved with it. Uh, and so IOMAB-B is what's been studied in the Phase three Sierra trial. This is a randomized study of IOMAB-B versus chemotherapy for active relapse to refractory AML. It was for older patients, 55 plus, primary induction failure or early relapse within six months or refractory to a salvage regimen or second relapse. Patients had to have an available matched donor, 
related or unrelated to go on the study and have a KPS of 70% or higher. And they're randomized one-to-one to get IOMAB-B, so the radio immune, the, the radio-labeled I-130, the I-131-labeled anti-CD45, followed 12 days later by transplant, versus chemotherapy from an available list of approved and agreed agents to try to achieve a remission and go on to transplant. Patients were randomized one-to-one, so if you went on the control arm and you achieved a complete remission, you received a non-ablative transplant. If you received IOMAB-B, you automatically got a transplant 12 days later with, uh, with non-ablative conditioning. And one of the nice things about this study that made it uh, actually easier to accrue, we contributed patients to this trial at, at uh, two of the Mayo Clinic sites, was that patients who did not achieve a complete remission by day 30 were able to cross over, since they were evaluable for the endpoint of complete remission, were able to cross over and get IOMAB-B therapy. This is how IOMAB-B is administered. There's a dosimetric dose where patients get a test dose of 10 to 20 millicuries and undergo bi-distribution imaging to target a dose. We're really looking to maximize the dose of IOMAB-B that can be given up to the maximum dose of 24 grade given to the liver. Uh, up to tolerance of the liver. Patients were getting high-dose radioimmunotherapy with this, mean 600 millicuries, uh, calculated on an individual basis based on their biodistribution or their dosimetry uh, from that test dose. Um, Patients then, 12 days later, they went into radiation isolation for several days and then were uh, discharged, and then 12 days later underwent non-ablative conditioning with fludarabine, single fraction of TBI, and matched donor transplant, and they received... uh, um, methotrexate and tacrolimus is a GVHD prophylaxis. So this is the schema for patients who received the IOMAB-B. Now, this data was presented last year at Tandem. This is the cohort of patients. 153 patients were randomized one-to-one. Median age was 65 or 66. I'm going to focus on these two areas for now. Almost all patients, well, the majority of patients had adverse karyotype, and about a third had intermediate risk, very few with favorable risk karyotype. Most patients had primary induction failure over half in both arms. Some had first early relapse or relapse refractory relapse or second relapse, and they were well balanced between the groups. And you can see this is, these are patients who had active leukemia, 19% blasts in the conventional care arm and a median of 30% blasts in the IOMAB-B arms. So they had higher blast counts. Another 40 patients, I mentioned to you already that on the conventional care, patients could cross over. Another 40 patients who did cross over had very similar characteristics in terms of age, karyotype, disease status, and the burden of disease. Now, this, this is the therapy of patients who were on the study. Of the, ones who, uh, of the patients who went on the study, excuse me, <clears throat> two-thirds had received a targeted therapy, therapy beforehand, of whom two-thirds had received venetoclax beforehand. So a heavily pretreated group of patients, many of whom had previous venetoclax, median number of three prior regimens with a range of up to seven. Of the patients who went out of the conventional care arm, half of them actually received a targeted agent, and of those, 80% included venetoclax, half of them who were subsequently rescued with IMAB-B. So just to tell you that these are patients who were heavily treated and had been venetoclax exposed for the most part. Now, these are the engraftment data, um, uh, the dose and engraftment data for the patients. Uh, the median dose was almost 650 uh, millicuries for IOMAB-B. The dose to the marrow was almost 16 gray. The stem cell dose, 5.5 million. Most, almost all, had, un, uh, had unre- well, two-to-one unrelated donor. Most had peripheral blood grafts. And you can see the time to ANC engraftment, 14 days, Plate engraftment, 17 days, 
no graft failures. 66 of the 76 patients who were registered to that arm went on to get IOMAB-B in transplant. In the conventional care arm of the ones who crossed over to IOMAB-B, very similar characteristics in terms of dose, dose to the marrow, stem cell dose, and also no graft failures of the crossover patients with the same, kind of, the same types of grafts, by the way, from, and same types of donors, and the same kinetics of engraftment. Median days, 13 to ANC recovery, 17 to platelet recovery. So 100% engraftment with IOMAB-B. 14 of the patients with conventional care went on to get a standard of care reduced intensity transplant or non-ablative transplant. Same cell dose, and you can see similar kinetics of, of uh, engraftment, 16 days ANC, 14 days platelets. One of the 14 had a graft, engraftment failure. This appears to be a safe conditioning strategy for patients with active leukemia followed by a non-ablative transplant. The only difference in toxicity, if you look at febrile neutropenia rates, which were a little lower than conventional care uh, patients, mucositis, pneumonia, AKI, respiratory failure, the rates were relatively low and lower or similar with IOMAB-B. And there was a statistical difference in the rates of sepsis, 5.3% versus 23% uh, of patients who uh, received standard of care transplant, or who uh, were in the conventional care arm. Uh, so overall, I think, I don't want to overstate having IOMAB-B in a transplant as being well-tolerated, but pretty well-tolerated considering the circumstances, lower incidence of, of sepsis. So um, there are updates from this study. This meeting is the first report on efficacy, um, and the data is embargoed but being presented on Saturday. The sponsor, Actinium, uh, released a, uh, in October, released a, a press release saying that IOMAB met the primary endpoint of durable complete remission of six months following an initial CR after transplant, and that was statistically significant, so that we will see not just the engraftment data, the toxicity data, and the demographics, but actually the efficacy of this treatment. And this is being presented as a late-breaking abstract on Saturday evening at 5 p.m., and I strongly encourage you to attend and follow that data. Uh, so to come back to Alice, um, the R72-year-old with refractory AML, despite decided being in venetoclax, in terms of recommendations, there are very few good options for her. And I, I don't know, Dr. Altman, what, what you would have done at, at Northwestern in this situation. It's not an easy space. Thank you. Um, I agree with you completely. There are not good options. We would have offered her a clinical trial. Um, outside of a clinical trial, I think... Um, if she maintains her performance status, given her prior treatment, you could try an attempt at intensive chemotherapy, and though I would be very reluctant. Um, and I'm very eager to hear the data with IOMAB-B. Yeah, Saturday at 5 o'clock. <laughs> um, there are obviously ongoing challenges in this space, and we're looking for more openings to move forward. And I, I think, you know, at ASH, there was a, a plenary presentation on the ASAP trial about immediate chemotherapy versus delayed chemotherapy before transplant for refractory AML. And I think I, I, Jessica and I discussed this earlier. I, I'm going to speak for both of us and say we're waiting on more clarification from that data set to understand how best to, uh, uh, to manage that. So I'm going to come, uh, finish with some take-homes and then some re-polling. Up front, you must consider the disease characteristics and patient goals. For FLT3-positive disease, mitostorin is the standard of care, but quizartinib has positive data, may be an option, and we're waiting on uh, other randomized trials for gilteritinib to see if that's a, as, as good or better option. TP53 remains a challenge, and there are new checkpoint inhibitors and immune modalities that are in development. For post-remission and relapse refractory, we discuss maintenance options, FLT3 after transplant, 
potential role for IOMAB-B, and there's a late-breaking abstract on Saturday, if I didn't mention it, and the evolving role of salvage options in relapse refractory AML. I want to thank you all for your intention. I'd like to thank ASTST for, ASTCT for the opportunity, um, the, the sponsors, uh, Peerview for their assistance in, uh, with the symposium, and my colleague, uh, uh, Dr. Jessica Altman, for doing this with me. So thanks very much, everybody. Okay. Um, hi, everyone. Outstanding questions were delivered to us. I think there are um, 15 or 20 of them here, and I don't think we're going to be able to get through all of them. Um, but I think the first salient question um, was, and you may know the answer to this, is can I get IOMAB-B approved by insurance outside of a clinical trial? Um, transplant can be approved. IOMAB-B won't be approved by insurance because it's not yet FDA approved. We're waiting to see the results on Saturday, but I know that Actinium is, is dedicated to filing an IND by the end of the year, and I think they're planning on starting it a, um, uh, it's not called compassionate use anymore, a... Uh, Expanded access program. Thank you. So that may be a possibility. Uh, you can contact Actinium uh, for information about that. That may, that may become a possibility. Great. There are a number of post-transplant maintenance questions, um, and I'm going to try to summarize them. Um, the first one is, is there any role for venetoclax as maintenance post-transplant? Um, and... Um, why don't we start with that one? Yeah, do you want me to start Go addressing ahead. that? Sure. Uh, the answer is maybe. We were, you know, the, I, I, as I was walking down to the meeting room today, I saw a poster for Viali-T, the randomized study of Azaven uh, after transplants. And so that question's being asked. That's a very important question. And I think that study is going to finish accrual sometime this summer or this fall. So we hopefully, uh, uh, don't quote me on the dates of that, but hopefully we'll get information about that. A HMAs, you have to lower the dose after transplant. That'll be true of venetoclax, I'm sure, just because of cytopenias. Uh, so we'll have to learn how to do that. But the answer is maybe, and that's a, an important question. There are other maintenance strategies that are being developed, too. Um, and please, if there are people who have not written down questions and you want to use the mics, you're more than welcome to. Um, I'll keep going through these questions with James um, in case anyone wants to ask. Um, other questions. Um, so along the lines of alternate HMAs, uh, many individuals, and I personally am interested um, in if, and if you or people at your institution have made the conversion from using um, IV or sub-Q azacitidine or decitabine to an oral formulation, either in CoV, oral decitabine, or oral azacitidine. Yeah, I want to be I want to be careful what I admit to on the record. And um, we have had patients who have difficulty coming to get parenteral HMA where we have given them oral D-cytamine cetazurity and also called ENCOVI. So we've done that, and we've even done it in combination in certain situations. I wouldn't say it's a validated, proven, published thing, but there's emerging experience, and there were multiple abstracts at ASH about combining oral D-cytamine um, with uh, venetoclax or other targeted agents. So I, I personally think that's reasonable, but it's off-label use. I don't know. Is that what you're doing also? Yeah, I, I think one other thing to point out is we don't yet have um, 
data that the use of um, Encovi, the oral decytabine compound, or um, oral EZA in combination with venetoclax, so that was one of the questions, if that impairs the absorption of either or the, the, the results in terms of, of benefit. I think it's unlikely to do that, and that data is emerging. We should have that information soon. Um, so outside of a clinical trial, I'm not combining those oral agents yet until we have data. So I'm not going to admit to doing it then. But you can admit to whatever okay. you want. Okay. Here. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure. If the, yeah, you can shout a moment. We'll right. the question. If you like. So um, FLT3 inhibitors with intensive induction. So back in ratified, the Dono dose was 60 in mitostorin and placebo arms. It looks like in precog, it's 90 in both arms. So what are your thoughts on like, ideal Dono dosing with uh, FLT3 inhibitors? So I believe the question is, and I could change it because it's such a hard question, but I believe the question was, um, in the um, ratified trial, uh, the anthracycline dose was donorubicin of 60 um, in combination with mitostorin, and in the precog study, we used a dose of 90. And how do we feel about that, especially with emerging data that was presented at ASH regarding the different doses of anthracycline? So I think my kind of cop-out answer is, is I tend to follow the, um, the experience of what was done in the clinical trial that has led to approval. So outside of a clinical trial, if a patient of mine is getting um, uh, mitostorin for their FLT3 inhibitor in combination with donorubicin, I was following that dosing, um, whereas we, it, but we were very heavy um, enrollers, very keen participants of the precog study. Um, so I am interested in um, seeing the results of the precog study in terms of response. Um, there had been a lot of interest in precog that the, the anthracycline dose was important. That's based on uh, prior trials um, that my colleague is intimately familiar with. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't have anything to add to that. I, I, I just follow the recipe I'm giving in that situation, but it's a fair question. We don't know. Uh, we'll take this question in the microphone, then I want to answer all the TP53 questions at once. And then we'll let everybody get on to the other sessions. But uh, please, go ahead. So in the current era, um, how would you maintain a patient with FLT3, ITD, AML, post-consolidation? Would you prefer to get a FLT3 inhibitor or go with the FDA-approved on your egg? Oh, I like that question. Okay. Thank you. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but what I understood was an individual who has FLT3, ITD-mutated acute myeloid leukemia who receives um, intensive induction chemotherapy consolidation and does not undergo stem cell transplant, do they, what do they receive for maintenance therapy? So right now we have one approved um, therapy in that situation, and that is oral azacitidine. Um, and um, generally, that's what I've used. I have to tell you that any of my... Um, intensive eligible patients, I'm strongly recommending stem cell transplant for FLT3 mutated uh, disease. And so most of my patients are going to transplant, and then I'm giving them usually a FLT3 inhibitor post-transplant. Ideally, in the context of the trial, we, you know, participated in Morpho as well. Um, So there's that. Do I think that I might switch to a FLT3 inhibitor post-transplant, or FLT3 inhibitor in someone who hasn't undergone stem cell transplant? Um, So the the um, Ratify study, um, as you know, there was not approval of mitostorin for maintenance based on that study. Um, but I, I'm really eager to see the, 
the pre-Cago 905 study and the Hovon data, and maybe w some of us will extrapolate um, the use of a FLT3 inhibitor um, even in individuals who haven't undergone stem cell transplant. But today, um, in that situation of someone who is not undergoing stem cell transplant, I would be using oral azacitidine. Yeah, me too. Um, just because of time, I'm going to finish up. There were several questions about TP53, and I, I'm sensing from the tone of questions that, that I depressed everybody, um, which <laughs> or maybe you already were already about this, this topic. But one is, do we, do we need to reevaluate offering transplant in this setting? Is there a cost-benefit analysis in this setting? Would you do this in a patient who's got less than 5% blast but still TP53 positive? And is there a VAF cutoff of TP53 that would say yes or no to transplant? And I do believe that there's a survival advantage of transplant versus, there is a survival advantage of transplant versus no transplant. So it becomes a question as, are you improving survival versus cure? The cure rate's about 15%. And um, hopefully maintenance options will improve that, hopefully in the future targeted therapies. I really don't personally believe there's a strong role for myeloblative conditioning in that setting. And so... I, I still think it's reasonable to do, but I don't think it's crazy to do a cost-benefit analysis and look for alternate strategies in that setting. And that's a really difficult conversation with patients about what you're going to accomplish with this transplant. Uh, but we've known since the Welch data in the New England Journal in 2016 that transplant's better than no transplant. It's just not better enough. In terms of a VAF, I don't know of a cutoff of VAF. Um, Often patients will have an MDS and leukemia rises. You clear that clone, they still have an MDS. And we know there's a survival advantage of transplants in MDS. So I don't think that there's a VAF, VAF cutoff for TP53. It just tells you that's an MRD-positive patient, and that's a high relapse risk situation. Off protocol, I would be putting them on low-dose decidabine maintenance at, at, um, around day 100 to try to do the best I could for them, although I don't have proof that's the right thing in TP53. Um, and the last question is, would you give them more therapy if there's less than 5% blast but still TP53? I personally would not. I think you're going to give them more mor morbidity. It's the transplant that's going to do whatever it's going to do. I don't know if you have a different opinion about those. No, I, I agree. I think, um, I think all of us would like to hope that like what we've seen with the transplant outcomes in FLT3-mutated patients who receive a FLT3 inhibitor and then go to transplant, there's appears to maybe that there's a change in the natural history, maybe we will be able to develop um, better therapies in TP53 mutated disease such that we're able to see a similar trend. Um, and I'd like to end on a, on a, on a hopeful note because um, like all of you, I am always depressed when I think about TP53 mutated acute myeloid leukemia. But we're happy now. So, <laughs> so. Hey, I want to say thank you to all of you for attending, and again, thank you for ASTCT for uh, the invitation for the symposium. This activity is certified by the Medical College of Wisconsin. This activity is co-provided with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KZP860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Actinium Pharmaceuticals, Astellas, and Bristol-Myers Squibb.